All right, we're in Matthew chapter 20. If you'd like to open your Bible or navigate on your device to Matthew 20, we're gonna look at verses one through 16 this morning. The topic, Jesus tells a parable in which the owner of a vineyard purposely pays the day laborers he hired in reverse order in order to reveal his generosity. The title of our message, Pay It Backward. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning. Uh, as we uh, look at your word this morning, we pray that we would see uh, it as a mirror, Lord, revealing Jesus Christ to us. We're gonna talk a lot about grace today, Lord. I pray that we would... Uh, uh, take a step in understanding your sufficient and abundant and superabundant grace, that we would want to absolutely lose ourselves in it uh, and, and certainly serve in it. I pray if there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, that they would come to know you by the ministry of your spirit working on their heart, revealing Christ to them. And for we who are believers, Lord, that we'd be greatly refreshed and encouraged. Uh, many of us come with a uh, you know, a positive face, Lord, but uh, there's uh, a lot of hurt, a lot of heartache going on in our lives. Uh, we desire, Lord, for you to be our comforter coming alongside of us and helping us this day. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It was a three-car race for the undisputed Piston Cup championship. Lightning McQueen was going to win until he saw that Chick Hicks had clipped the king, sending him into a horrific end-over-end crash. It would have been a terrible way to end his storied career. How many of you realize I'm talking about the movie Cars, right? All right. Really? When did that happen? Uh, barely able to stop before crossing the finish line for the win, McQueen let Chick Hicks cross as the winner while he went back to help the king. He pushed the crippled racer across the finish line, officially taking last place. It's a modern-day parable of Jesus' statement, the last shall be first and the first last. He may have finished last, but McQueen was first with everyone on account of his sacrifice and just the opposite for Chick Hicks. Now, the last shall be first was one of Jesus' favorite sayings. It occurs here. It occurs in Mark 10.31 and in Luke 13.30, and each time it occurs in a totally different context. It doesn't always occur with this parable. It occurs in Matthew uh, with a parable in between the last verse of chapter 19 and the uh, chapter 20, verse 16, which says, uh, many who are first will be last and the last first, and then the last will be first and the first last. And so it's sandwiched in between those two statements. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard is when the owner of the vineyard hires laborers to work in his field during the harvest at various times during the day, and he pays those he hired last just as much as he pays those he hired at first. Now, we are those laborers. We are at work in the Lord's field, the world. We might sometimes be first. We might sometimes be last. But either way, we ought to approach the work in the spirit of our Lord's generosity or what we call grace. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, serve with grace when you are one of the first. And number two, serve with grace when you are one of the last. Let's take a look at being first. Let's read through the parable, make some brief comments about it, and then we'll get into its application to our lives. So we start in verse one, of course. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. A Jewish workday was 12 hours long. It started at 6 a.m., and they worked that way six days a week. 
At the start of the long workday, the owner went to find laborers for his harvest. Hired laborers in ancient Israel were the lowest class of workers. Some of you are saying, yeah, I can relate to that. They were unskilled, untrained, they were unemployed except for one day at a time. Life for a day laborer was somewhat desperate and precarious because if they didn't work that day, they didn't eat and neither did their families. The vineyard owner went to the marketplace where the day laborers congregated. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, you've probably heard that a denarius was a day's wage. It was, but not for a day laborer. It was a standard pay for a skilled worker. It was a standard pay for a Roman soldier. It was more than a day laborer could expect to receive. It was way more. Verse three, and he went out about the third hour and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. Now these other laborers hired throughout the day, they may have arrived from another village where they were not hired because if you didn't get hired immediately, you might think that there was more work in another village. It may be that this owner, as I'm thinking about it right now, he may not have even needed these additional workers, but he may have gone back to the marketplace to make sure that everyone there had a job that day. There's no indication, otherwise you think, well, why didn't he just hire the guys that he needed if they were gonna be there all day? He may have just being extra generous, which is the point of this parable. Now, these other laborers hired throughout the day may have arrived from another village, but either way, they probably knew what the owner had paid those earlier guys. Word would have circulated that his hires were going to work for a denarius a day, a very generous wage. They were therefore willing, without any negotiation, to take whatever this very generous man would give them. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. Now, a denarius was a day, was generous, as we've already seen, but a denarius an hour, that's incredible. He was giving them more than a decent day laborer's daily wage for a single hour of work in the relative cool of the day. These last workers probably had to pretend that they were working up a sweat. And by the time they got out into the field and started to do anything, it was time to just put the tools away and wash up. But when the first came, verse 10, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give the last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? The heat of the day translates to the burner of the day. It translates to tomorrow uh, and the rest of the week as I understand it. 
It had been a scorcher with the hot east wind burning the flesh, parching the lips, and horsing the throat. With hoarse voices and through parched lips, these sunburned workers grumbled. But with unassailable logic, the owner pointed out he had done nothing wrong. He had been more than fair and generous with them. What was it to them if he wanted to be generous with others? Now, a parable obviously is told to illustrate something, and in this case, it was to illustrate the oft-repeated saying of Jesus. The parable was preceded by many who are first will be last and the last first. It is concluded by, in verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. All the workers were the recipients of tremendous generosity, and none of them had any cause whatsoever to complain. The first workers were treated generously. The last workers were treated as well as the first workers. Now, this is what the parable is not about. It is not about eternal life because eternal life is a free gift of God and no one works for it at any level. It is not about eternal rewards because the passages in the Bible that discuss your rewards make it clear that some will have more than others. It is possible to earn more rewards. It's not gonna be uh, even. The parable must be about our serving the Lord as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. While we wait for his return to establish the literal physical kingdom of heaven on earth, we are sent out into the world, into the field to be the Lord's harvest workers. Obviously, with the Lord gone some 2,000 years, some workers came first, while others, like us, came later. And so there's a sense in which we are, we are never going to be among the first workers in the Lord's vineyard by virtue just of time. At some point, there will be a last worker, the guy or gal who receives Christ and then is immediately raptured at the return of the Lord for his church. I don't know why, I've always been fascinated with this ever since I was first saved and, and understood the rapture of the church. I, I don't know why, but I've always think, who is that last person going to be? And where will that person be? And then just as soon as they, you know, for example, finish their sinner's prayer, maybe even before it, the trumpet's gonna blow and the Lord's gonna take us all home. And so there's gonna be a last individual. Uh, obviously, just as obviously, Workers have been scattered all over the earth in every possible social and economic situation, making all of our service very, very different. Those who suffer persecution we might describe as bearing the heat of the day, while others who enjoy a relatively comfy life never work up a sweat, so to speak. But no matter the time or the place, serving the Lord takes place because of and in the sphere of His grace. Grace was the currency of the vineyard owner in the parable, and it is God's currency as we serve in the spiritual fields of the world. In other words, we have to think in terms of grace rather than earning or merit or reward or anything like that. What Jesus shows us in this parable is that he is generous to a fault. He gives to all more than they could hope to earn or ever deserve. For example, Though we serve with the expectation of a reward in eternity, our service is actually already owed to the Lord on account of his free and abundant grace which saved us. Uh, one of our favorite verses, of course, Romans 12, 1, 
I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We offer ourselves living sacrifices because it is the reasonable response to what the Lord has done for us. What Paul was saying in that verse is it only makes sense that you would serve the Lord in light of what he's done for you in saving you by grace through faith. In other words, the Lord's done so much for you, you can't wait to serve him. It's reasonable. And then we find that as we serve him, he empowers us by his grace to do it. We don't serve him in our own strength or by our own wisdom. You know, you begin serving the Lord the minute you're saved, you don't even know what you believe. You barely know who you believe, and yet the Lord begins to use you. Some of you have had the experience of getting saved and then you immediately share with someone else, a friend or a family member, and they get saved. You didn't even have to go to seminary. In fact, you didn't even have to read the Bible through once because it's all the Lord. Every opportunity to serve him is set before you by his grace as he opens doors or shuts them. If we have what would be deemed success in serving him, that is by grace. If we suffer for him on account of our serving, we are sustained by his grace. We cannot claim any contribution in serving the Lord except our availability. And even then, we understand that if we were to not make ourselves available, God's work would press forward without us. You've probably heard the phrase in church, God doesn't need your ability, he only needs your availability. Have you heard that? It's, it's a clever way of trying to encourage you. But I find it actually uh, in error because God doesn't even need your ability uh, or your availability, excuse me. Uh, if you don't make yourself available, if I don't make myself available, God's work is going to go on. I'm gonna be the loser, not God. It goes along with another thing you sometimes hear in churches that uh, it, it's, a, it's to motivate us to serve the Lord, and that is people say that the church is always one generation away from extinction, meaning that if we don't do the work of the ministry, no one hears about Jesus and the whole movement dies. Now I understand it as an encouragement, but again, it's aberrant because Jesus said what? My church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, the church is absolutely going to succeed because Jesus said it would. Uh, and, and so though I need to be motivated to serve the Lord because it is the reasonable thing to do based on his grace, not because the whole thing's gonna fail if I don't do my part, because that's just not true. Uh, and, and so it's all of grace. We need, to, we need to really lock into this concept of grace. Who or when am I first? Well, let's start with the context of the parable. Peter and the other disciples were, you might say, first. They were the first to leave everything and follow Jesus. They were promised first positions in the coming kingdom of heaven on the earth. They, along with a little over 100 others, would be the first to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They'd also be among the first to be martyred for preaching the gospel. If I'm Peter listening to this parable, I should get from it that I ought to revel in God's grace to me, a lowly fisherman to be used by him. With no training other than exposure to Jesus, he would become a world leader in the future kingdom. I mean, think of it from that aspect. Peter, when he said, hey, what's in store for us? Jesus said, you're going to sit on one of the 12 thrones in my kingdom. 
I, I don't know what they'll be called, a ruler or a president or a prime minister or whatever, but Jesus is saying the only, you're a fisherman, the only thing that distinguishes you from other fishermen is you happen to be a big brawny fisherman, and you know, there's an episode in the Gospels where Peter has to come over and help them pull up the net, it's so full. I mean, he was a, he was a hulking kind of a guy. How does that qualify you for being one of the 12 leaders of the future kingdom? It doesn't. Uh, the only, so he went from fisherman to uh, you know, leader because of exposure to Jesus Christ. And so it's all, it's all grace. He ought to therefore rejoice at God's grace in the lives of all those that would come after him, no matter if they gave all or relatively little. If Jesus wants to be gracious to the last, then who am I to have an evil eye and grumble about it? Also in the context of the parable, you could say that Israel was first in God's plan. He chose them to represent him. They had the scriptures, the prophets, and many other spiritual blessings. But they would reject Jesus as their Messiah, and the gospel would go out to all, to Jew and Gentile alike. The Gentile who was last would become first in this current dispensation of God's grace while the kingdom is postponed. The time in which we live is sometimes called the, uh, the time of the Gentiles. Paul the Apostle says, uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, Israel is going to remain in a kind of spiritual blindness. And so the first became last, and the last became first. What about us? How are we first? Well, one application as to attitudes, uh, if you're just looking from that perspective, we tend to have an attitude that God should deal with us on the basis of tenure and seniority. Those are things that we find important, usually out in the world of employment. Uh, you know, we don't all serve in a system of tenure or uh, seniority, but if we don't, we have a suspicion that we ought to. Uh, in fact, the, the world in which we live, the workaday world, is a world of tenure, seniority, leading to retirement. Uh, and and that, that's what we do. We work hard when we're young, so that we can work less hard as we get older, so that we're just about ready to retire, we can do practically nothing, so that when we retire, we can do nothing. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, if that's the way the economy is set up. However, we believe that so strongly that we bring it into the church and we think the same thing about serving the Lord, when actually, it's quite the opposite. As I get older in the Lord and have more tenure and more seniority, I should be bearing a larger load, more of the burden, and there's never any retirement when it comes to being a Christian until I'm taken home to be with the Lord. Have you ever thought that you were doing most of the work while others or one other person slacked off? I've heard it said in churches, 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. I don't think it's true of us here, but if it were, is that something to have an evil eye about and to grumble about? If I'm understanding the Lord, I want to be first. I want to bear the heat of the day. I should see myself having an advantage over those who are last because I get to enjoy God's grace more than they can. If my serving is unto him, then I want to be hired at 6 a.m. and I want to work till 6 p.m., trusting in God's generosity to me and enjoying it in the lives of those who come after me. In fact, once I get a feel for this landowner, I just go out into the field at 4 a.m. and start working without him even hiring me, trusting that he's gonna pay me whatever he feels he wants to pay me. 
I might secretly hope on one hand that I'm the only hire so I can experience all the grace. That's a neat attitude. Instead of us having the normal attitude like, you know, why didn't everybody show up when they were supposed to to help stack chairs, I should have the idea, hey, I get to stack all the chairs by myself. Thank you, Lord, for that grace. I simultaneously hope the Lord will raise up other workers, not because I need the help, but so that they too can experience his grace. I don't want folks to serve because there's work to be done so much as if they don't, they are missing out on that part of their walk with the Lord. Here's another thought on the first being last. We must concentrate our spiritual efforts on finishing the race well. Anyone can start well. In a marathon or a long distance race, even an average runner can take the early lead. Uh, I bet if I wanted to, I could take the early lead in the Boston Marathon. For the first five steps, I could probably be in the lead, but then I would collapse after the first block. And many do fall by the wayside, the victims of rather than the victors over the devil's temptations of their flesh using the things of the world. They are last in the sense of ruining their lives as well as ruining or at least harming the lives of others. Maybe you've been saved 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years. You can't coast to the finish line. You should be getting stronger spiritually, taking longer strides, pushing yourself harder than ever before. When you do, you'll find that there is grace in abundance. Yet another application is being careful that after having begun in the spirit, you do not seek to continue in the flesh. It's easy enough to do as a certain measure of pride in your competence or maturity can creep in. You begin to trust in your own wisdom or the wisdom of men rather than the wisdom of God. Uh, ministries that you used to really pray over or even fast over, you just, you know, you don't even study for them anymore because you've done it so often. We ought to be getting all the more spiritual, not less. Then too, we can go from first to last if we leave our first love for Jesus Christ. The church at Ephesus, written to in the book of the Revelation, was pounding out good works and standing on good doctrine, but Jesus had something against them that they had left their first love. He was now last in their lives, and in that sense, they became last. Now, one more sobering thought. When Jesus said these words and told this parable, Judas was among the 12 apostles. He was among the first, but he would fall and become not just last, he would be lost. This leads me to say that you may not be saved or there may be an individual here who's not saved. You may merely think you are among the first when in the end the Lord will say to you, I never knew you, depart from me. Be certain that you've been born again, born from above, that you're a child of God. Many times in counseling, uh, this happens a lot in pre-marriage counseling, somebody will bring, some, they, they wanna get married and they bring somebody that we're unfamiliar with and I'll say, hey, you know, praise the Lord. Um, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Okay, when did you get saved? I've, I've always been a Christian. And as you quiz them more, you find out what they mean is that they were born in the United States and they believe that they're Christian because they're not, they've, they've become a Christian by process of elimination because they're not a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jew, therefore they are a Christian. They think it's a cultural term rather than uh, being born again and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we need to be certain that we're born again. How do you know if you're serving in grace without grumbling? Charles Swindoll wrote this. He said, grace is given with no expectations, with no conditions, with no constraints, with no record kept. Grace is not genuine 
unless it can be abused by the person receiving it. When that is how you minister, then you know it's grace. So get out there early, bear the heat of the day, work tirelessly without grumbling for the sheer joy of being used by God, finish strong, keeping yourself in first love with Jesus. Now secondly, we serve with grace when you're one of the last. Uh, It would seem on the surface that if you're one of the last, you'd be all about grace. Being last though has its challenges. For example, when your sphere of ministry or spiritual influence is small, even after months or years or decades of serving Jesus, you can feel last in a very depressed kind of way. It's then that you must remember the grace of God is abundant to you, just as abundant as it is to anyone else. You cannot compare yourself to others or measure by the standards of men. If we did, many if not most of the persons in the Bible would be considered last. Whenever we talk about a minister or a ministry that seemed to fail from a human point of view, the first name that pops up is Jeremiah. Uh, Talk about a messenger that went unheeded. Four decades he preached the word of God uh, and it led to uh, nothing in terms of repentance it led to the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Do you think it was any comfort to Jeremiah to be proven right by the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? Do you think when it happened, he said, see, I told you so, you should have listened to me. No, he wrote the book of Lamentations to talk about what a horrible, terrible time that it was. Yet we applaud him as a persevering hero of the faith. Now, I don't wanna leave this point too soon. Money and membership, square footage and staff are the ways we judge success. God must be blessing if you're growing and building. God must not be blessing if you're not growing and building. We cannot ever succumb to the judgment of men. Only God's judgment is valid, and he says we can have his grace in abundance despite our size and our stature. What about if you're afflicted? There's a whole group of professing believers who hold to the aberrant teaching that sickness and suffering are signs you lack faith and are not in the will of God. We know that it is not true that our light affliction is but for a moment and is working for us an eternal weight of glory. But we still feel last, abandoned by others and even by Jesus when our lives are dominated by suffering. We feel put on the shelf, so to speak. It's as if Darth Vader is talking to us saying, your lack of faith is disturbing. (laughs) It, It does, it disturbs us. Uh, no matter who we are. The Apostle Paul reveled in his afflictions specifically because they kept him in touch with the abundant grace of God. So should we when we feel that it makes us last. What about ability? Touched on this a little bit a minute ago. But don't you sometimes feel last because you don't seem to have the abilities or talents that others have? It can seem as though anyone is better able than you to present the gospel or to serve the Lord. We need to believe that ministry, genuine Holy Spirit ministry, is not by might nor by power, but is by the Spirit of God. The things we think are valuable, like uh, education and intellect and, and other abilities, may actually become hindrances. When God wanted to reach the nation of Ethiopia, he sent a simple, ordinary, spirit-filled disciple to sit along a desert road because he knew the Ethiopian eunuch who was the treasurer to Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, would be traveling that way. And then he arranged for Philip to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch, and in that chance meeting, 
he led him to Christ, baptized him, and sent him on into Ethiopia where he brought the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, and, and began to evangelize an entire nation. Would we have sent Philip? I dare say we would not have. If you're looking at a strategic church planting, you don't send uh, an average Christian to meet one of the highest officials in a government position. Uh, you, you just don't do that. You look for somebody who has some credentials, who has some credibility. But God did it that way so we would be reminded that you or I could have gone up and talked to the Ethiopian eunuch and had just as much success. Uh, we probably would have approached it maybe differently, who knows, but it's all by the Spirit of God and not by our training. Then there's the problem of your growing weary in well-doing. You faint, spiritually speaking, as you become overwhelmed in the work. You want to throw in the towel. You say to yourself, I can't take anymore. Ever been there? Ever feel that way? You feel last from the sheer weariness. Grace is yours in abundance at those times. You may be among the last, but if you are, you can still be faithful and it's required in servants that they be faithful, not that they be successful or talented or healthy or any other measurement. The things that we want to measure ourselves by don't matter as much as our personal faithfulness in the tasks themselves. So much of what we do can't really be measured because it's, it depends on the, the obedience of other individuals or uh, whole societies for that matter. And depending on where we're planted and where we're placed, all we could ever be hopeful to do is be faithful in what God has called us to do. I can be as faithful as Jeremiah and have as little impact on the world as Jeremiah did, or I can be as faithful as Paul the Apostle and have as much impact on the world as Paul the Apostle did. It's just, it has to do with the times and the place and the situation that God has placed each of us in. But all, the equalizing factor is faithfulness. Just be faithful. The last can be blessed as the first since we are dealing with the grace of God. You can also be last in some things and first in other things. But in all cases, as you work in the Lord's field, it is all of grace and he has it in abundance. Now Jesus ended his lesson by saying, the end of verse 16, for many are called but few are chosen. One resource I consulted had this to say, it is easy to misunderstand the word many in the New Testament because it has slightly different meanings in Greek than in English. In both languages it refers to a large group. In English, many is restrictive, but in Greek it is inclusive. In other words, if I say many of the people came in English, it implies that most of them did not. If I say the equivalent of many of the people came in Greek, it would imply that practically everyone did. In this case, we're dealing with a Greek usage that divides the whole into two unequal parts, which are called the many and the few. In Greek, the many and the few add up to everyone. And so if I'm looking at this according to this scholar from the original use of it in the language it was translated into, the many means everyone and of everyone a few of them get saved. And this actually matches with what we read elsewhere in the Bible. This concluding phrase is a sort of an altar call. At least that's what we might call it. 
having established that among those who are saved, the first and the last are both recipients of and should operate in the sphere of grace, it is important to determine if you are among the saved. Before determining if you are first or last, you must determine if you are one of the many or have become one of the few. The many, the whole world, is called. 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. John 12, 32, Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of his death on the cross, I will draw all peoples to myself. Jesus Christ died for everyone, but not everyone will be saved, only the few. The one condition you must believe, 1 Timothy 4.10, we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. So there you have it. The many, all men, especially those who believe, the few. The few are from the many who believe. They believe Jesus Christ is the sinless son of God, God in human flesh, who died as their substitute in order to save them from their sin. You are saved by grace when it operates on your heart to free your will to believe in Jesus. Then you are to continue serving God in his grace, by his grace. In some things you may be first, in other things last, but in all things and at all times, you walk and work in God's super abundant and generous to a fault grace. Let's pray.